Hello, people of the way. Blessings in Jesus. If you have your Bible, please open up to Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. We continue our study through the Old Testament. If you're listening for the first time, welcome. Uh, on Wednesdays, we study the Old Testament. And then on um, uh, Sundays, we study the New Testament. So we continue in our, in our study here in Joshua 11. Now, it's very important to remember that there is a war footing and war posture of Israel at this moment in Joshua chapter 11. Now, we see victory in war. Uh, Israel is having victory in war. But it's very important to remember that this is without Achan. No Achan. Achan's been dealt with. Achan's been handled in accordance to the law. Now, if you're listening for the first time and you, you hear me say that, it's like, whoa, what, do you, what, what does he mean that Achan's been taken care of? You know, Achan's been dealt with. Now, listen to our study through Joshua 7, you'll understand. Because Israel has victory upon victory upon victory upon victory. Except there was a moment where they have lost, they experience loss, they experience defeat, and they take casualties and carnally speaking, you think, well, it's because they, they weren't trained up. Was it because, you know, they weren't big enough? They weren't strong enough? No, it has nothing to do with that at all. It has everything to do with sin. Everything to do with trespass. And one guy, the choice of one guy, because he uh, harbored those things that were an abomination unto the Lord, that were evil unto the Lord, and there was opportunity for him to be clean, to get right with the Lord. And he refused those avenues by which a person can be clean before the Lord. And in accordance to the law, justice had been carried out. And not just on him, on his children, his sons and his daughters. There's no biblical account of his wife being stoned. But there is a biblical account of him, his sons and his daughters being stoned. I mean. I wonder what that would be like for his wife. I mean, you know, the Bible doesn't capture if she lived or not. I, I tend to think and believe that she lived. But oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. What a terrible day that would be for her. What a terrible day to wake up in the morning, full family, to go to bed at night. You're the only one in your tent. You see, and praise be to the Lord that we have these examples. Do you remember what Brother Paul says when he says that these things written in old are written for our admonition? They're written for our warning? Because, you know, we learn to fear the Lord. Sometimes when I have these conversations with people, they're like, well, I, I thought God is supposed to be loving. I thought God is supposed to be merciful and gracious. And how? Sh why should I fear him? I should love him. Well, every single car has a brake pedal and a gas pedal. And that's how I like to think of it. A brake pedal and a gas pedal. The love, you know, a, a person's love for the Lord, that's like the gas pedal. You know, I love you, Lord. You know, let's hit the gas and, you know, wherever you want, wherever, where, however you lead, however you direct, you know, like, you know, we're going because, you know, out of, out of love and, and I love you. And yes, Lord, we're going for it. It might be five miles an hour. It might be two miles an hour. It might be a hundred miles an hour. But Lord, you know, we're going forward and, you know, I'm so in love with you, Lord. But then don't forget the brakes. Don't forget the brakes. Okay, Lord, we're going five miles an hour, going 20 miles an hour. But if I continue going at this speed, it's going to be dangerous 
for me, the occupants and, you know, whoever's, uh, you know, oncoming traffic or if there's a red light or a pedestrian in the road. And then you hit the brake. You hit the brake. You see why? Well, there's an element of fear there. The fear of, you know, flying through the windshield. The fear of, you know, whoever the occupants are, you know, your spouse, kids flying through the windshield. The, the, the fear of, you know, rolling over and, you know, bodies flying out the window and, you know, hitting a pedestrian and, and you know, hitting uh, uh, oncoming traffic and then them flying out the window and, you know, all kinds of mess can happen. So there is that element of fear. You have the gas pedal, you have the brake pedal. And as Christians, you know, I give this example of, you know, uh, 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 driving a, a vehicle and, 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 and moving along the highway in a vehicle. But what about when we consider our own vessel, you and me, these temples, you know, and consider the sex, the drugs, the alcohol, you know, the whole nine yards. It's like, wow, you know, I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, somebody, uh, uh, there's a proposition for whatever it is, sex, drugs, rock and roll, the whole nine yards. It's okay. You know, Lord, I love you, but I also fear you. Brakes over here and we're hitting the gas pedal over here, you know, and it's it, that's how it is, the life of a Christian. And so that's why it's so beautiful to learn the fear of the Lord, because it helps us, the fear of the Lord. And just like in our studies in the Old Testament and, you know, the Torah and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers, you know, the fear of the Lord is a learned thing. But the Bible also says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning, 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 beginning. It's the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of wisdom. You see, and it's so powerful because, you know, a person learns to fear the Lord. And then th through the fear of the Lord, a person learns to trust in the Lord. And then in trusting in the Lord and realizing that his way is better than ours, all of a sudden a person falls deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper in love with the Lord. It's powerful. But when we study the Old Testament, we see it happens with few. It happens with few. When we study the Old Testament, I mean, look when all Israel was defiled. Who wasn't? Moses and Joshua. When fear spread to the camp, who didn't have it of the second general, you know, of that first generation, of the second generation that was, uh, uh, of the first generation, those who were uh, allowed to uh, pass into the promised land, there was only two. Caleb and, and Joshua, there was only two. And then, you know, when we get into future studies in the Old Testament, we're going to see like, wow, you know, like the majority, they have forgotten. But there is a minority that remembers. There is a remnant that remembers. And it's powerful. It's beautiful. And that's the Old Testament. But we see the exact same thing in the New Testament. I mean, if you've been walking with us for a while, you remember our study through the epistles, Paul's letters to the churches, and you look at... You know, you make the comparison, juxtapose 1 Corinthians with Philippians. I mean, Philippians, it's such a beautiful, I mean, they're both beautiful letters. But Philippians, it's such a beautiful letter because, you know, you see these exhortations. You see a little bit of warning, you know, don't do this, don't do that. And, you know, you're, you're so, these saints are so beautiful, the Philippian saints. 
Not to say that the Corinthian saints aren't beautiful, but they had their issues. They definitely had their issues. And when you make that comparison between 1 Corinthians and Philippians, I mean, the Corinthian church, but in the letter, the 1 Corinthian letter, there's a difference between the first letter and the second letter, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, the beginning, that's the body, like the, the, the whole. But then in towards the end of the, uh, the latter half of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that's the remnant. Because the leaven, just like Achan, the leaven had been dealt with. You see, I mean, in the Old Testament, it's like, okay, stoning for Achan. And there was stoning for his sons and daughters, those who were under his influence. But then at the same time, we look at the New Testament. It's like, wow, was there, were the Corinthian saints stoned? No, no. You know, there is, there is only one who is sinless. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the only one that is biblically qualified to cast any stone. He is the only one because with him, there is no hypocrisy. With him, he is the fulfillment of the law. He was without sin. There is only one who is qualified to stone. And he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. Because the door of mercy and grace is open today. It's not as open as it was, you know, a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago, but it's open nonetheless. But the Bible teaches that this door of grace and mercy, it's closing. It's not going to be open forever. It is closing. And it's so powerful when we see how, you know, Achan was dealt with. And I'm not advocating stoning. I'm not advocating like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm so happy that he was stoned. I'm so happy that his sons and daughters were stoned. No, I don't want to come off that way. But understand that justice, when carried out in accordance to the word of God, understanding the covenants, Understanding the covenants and the rules of engagement and the rules that, you know, that, that, that govern each covenant. Old covenant, that's handled one way. Justice and it's stoning. But in the New Testament, there is still justice, except it is pending. It is pending. Because you see, we'll take the Corinthian example. You take the leaven of Corinth and, you know, there's a separation from them. So now you have the, 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 the remnant of Corinth and then you have the leaven of Corinth. The remnant, they're no longer together with the leaven. Now, does that mean that the, that the leaven gets stoning? They're on the receiving end of stoning? No. And when you hear us say that it is a pending matter, because the, there is opportunity for the leaven to be made right with the Lord, for them to repent, for them to get right with the Lord, and then for them to come back into the remnant. But that can't be forced. That's a decision of the leaven. They have a choice to make. You see? And what happens is that the law is a tutor. The law is a schoolmaster to bring a person back to Christ. But when the leaven continues to refuse, that's when hearts get hard. And through the hardening of the heart, that's how hearts go from, you know, from, from, from jello to balsa to maple to oak to pine and then all of a sudden to stone. You see? And when a heart becomes stone of the, of the leaven, remember talking about the leaven now. 
There's plenty opportunity for the leaven to be to to rejoin the remnant. But there's a very specific formula for that to happen. Listen to our study through the Old Testament from 1 Corinthians on to, uh, 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 and then through the pastoral epistles. Listen to all those studies and you'll understand more. It will help you grow. It will help you mature in Christ. And so what happens is that there's opportunity for the leaven to rejoin the remnant. But when that doesn't happen among the leaven, you have hearts that get harder and harder and harder, and then they turn to stone. And when a heart becomes stone, now justice is in play. Biblical justice. I mean, like, if a person dies in that state, we're talk- it's, it's not a pretty picture. We're talking, you know, the door to hellfire, damnation, the lake of fire, it is open. It is in play when that happens. It's very serious business. You know, sometimes people say, oh, you know, don't, don't tell people about hell. Don't tell people about hell. Well, why not? I mean, when we make these, when we, when we study the Bible, we read the Bible, it's like, well, you know, Jesus spoke about hell. Yeah, but, you know, he's loving and we're not supposed to tell people about hell. Well, it's like, well, wait a second. You know, it depends because, you know, to the woman at the well, he, he, he spoke of living water. And in, in speaking of living water, she believed. But then at the same time, for some, he just straight up spoke about, you know, hellfire, damnation. And, you know, people came to Christ. People, people believed in him. And it's so powerful because the Lord reaches us. The Lord touches us, each of us, individually. And he knows what he's working with. And so we see these Old Testament examples. You know, sometimes, you know, there's such a separation from the Old Testament where we're like, well, you know, it's Achan, so that was Old Testament, so it's no big deal. You know, we're Christians, so it's it's good to go. And, you know, God is merciful. God is gracious. So, you know, I can go ahead and have sin in my tent. I can go ahead and sin and over here and sin over here, trespass over here. We'll be forgiven and this and that. Well, all of a sudden, we remember the study through the book of Romans and, you know, how Paul says, don't take advantage of God's grace. Does, it, does that mean we should sin more so that grace can abound? He says, certainly not, exclamation point. That's not good because a Christian can start to take advantage of the grace of God. You see, that's not good. And yet we have these studies in the Old Testament And remember what Brother Paul says, that they're written for our admonition so that we can learn. And in this war footing of Israel, we see here in Joshua chapter 11, let's start in verse 1. And it came to pass, when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things that he sent to... Now, notice what we see here. We have King Jabin, which in the Hebrew translates as like cunning, intelligent, skillful, and I think that's so beautiful and so powerful in terms of, I mean, not, not beautiful for him. I mean, you know, you know, he, he's intelligent, he's cunning, he is skillful in certain things, but it's so beautiful for us to learn. Let's just see what happens. You, you'll understand when I say it's so beautiful. You'll understand just, just in a little bit. So you have King Jabin and he hears about Joshua and Israel. And so he calls for backup. And this king, Jabin, he calls in, in verse one says that he sent out to uh, Jobab, king of Madon, to the king of Shimron, to the king of uh, Akshaf, and to the kings who were from the north in the mountains, in the plain south of Shinaroth or Hinaroth, and in the lowland and in the heights of Dor on the west. 
So, you know, King Jabin, you think like, wow, you know, that's, that, that's enough right there. But what King, J- King Jabin does is he sends to even more in verse three to the Canaanites in the east and in the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in, in the mountains and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah. Now, remember, intelligent, skillful, this cunning King Jabin, He's assembling together with other tribes. Just like we see in our previous studies and in in the previous chapters, we see how there were peoples and cities and towns and rulers and kings, how they would form an alliance against Israel. They would form an alliance against Joshua, against Israel. And so we see that same model, what Jabin is doing in his intelligence and his skill and in his cunning ways. And there's a lot of people. A lot of people that are forming against Israel. A formidable force. And so look what happens here in verse 4. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, with very many horses and chariots. That's... I mean, you have... Opposition. You have enemy forces. And in number, they're like the sand. And they got their horses with chariots. You know, it's... I mean, put yourself in Joshua's sandals. Put yourself in Joshua's sandals when there's, you know, these alliances that are forming against him, forming against Israel. And he's the leader of Israel. I mean, he has a responsibility. And you remember our study in Joshua 1 when the Lord tells him, you know, don't be afraid. I am with you. Be strong and courageous. And then you look at, you know, Joshua chapter 7 and you see how he's kind of faltering a little bit. And he's kind of uh, shaking a little bit like, you know, Lord, I thought you were with me and I thought you were with us. I thought you were with me. You said that, you know, to be strong and courageous, you said that we will have victory upon victory. And yet we took casualties with Ai. In, in, in the town of Ai, we took casualties. And then the Lord says, you know, like, why, why are you praying? It's not to say that I'm not with you. He, the, the Lord reiterates and says, yes, that all those apply that, yes, I'm with you. Yes, be strong and courageous. Yes, don't be afraid. But you took casualties and suffered defeat, not because of me, well, I mean, you know, not because, you know, like the, the, the promise wasn't there. It's because of Achan. And as a result, they suffered casualties. As a result, they took losses. As a result, wives had no more husbands. As a result, kids had no more dads because they died in war. You think, well, well they, they, they didn't strategize properly. No, there was sin in the camp. You see, when you understand formula, you know, in our stu- we stress Old Testament, New Testament, we stress formula, 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 formula. It, there wasn't anything wrong with Joshua. But in leadership capacity, he had a responsibility. And in that responsibility, to, remember, this is second generation. This isn't first generation. They aren't fresh out of Egypt where they can't say, I didn't know. No, they know. 
They know. The warriors, the fighters of Israel, they know. Except what happened with Achan is that sin, I mean, you know, sin and trespass entered the camp, but precursory to that, sin and trespass entered his heart, entered his mind. You see? And it's not to say, the Lord is not saying to Joshua, well, you know, these promises are, you know, no longer in effect. No, they're in effect, but there are conditions which make them effectual. Like the promises of God, they're there for Joshua, for you, for me. The promises of God, they are there but in order for those promises to be effectuated, there's a certain recipe. There's a certain formula. I mean, when we read about promises of the Lord, you know, that's why it, Joshua 1 was difficult. For me, it was difficult to, to teach because I want all of us to lean on the promises of God. And we can certainly lean on the promises of God. I, I desire for every single one of us to lean on the promises of God because we absolutely can. More sure than the planet Earth, standing on the planet Earth, is standing on the word of the Lord. More, more certain and more sure and more steadfast, more... The, the, a, a firmer foundation than the very planet that we stand on is the word of God. But there's a certain formula. There's a certain recipe. We stress formula for a reason. Because, you know, it's if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Bible says that the Lord will not hear the prayers. So what does that tell me as a believer? Well, don't regard iniquity in my heart. It's like, well, you know, easier said than done. Don't regard iniquity. Well, there's a transformation that happens in the mind of a believer, in the heart of a believer, where, you know, previously you might have done the sex, the drugs, the rock and roll, but as a new creation, it's like, wow, you know, no more sex, drugs, rock and roll, the whole nine yards. You know, marriage is a different ball game, you know, when it comes to sex, but, you know, you know we'll, we'll listen to our prior studies about marriage and, you know, you'll understand more, but I mean, it, it's so beautiful when... When formula is not just understood, but when we apply the formula to our lives. Because remember, in Joshua 1, when the Lord is speaking to Joshua and saying, you know, be strong and courageous, do not fear, I'm with you. You will be victorious and kings won't be able to stand before you. He's speaking to Joshua. It's the Lord unto Joshua. There's multitudes of people. And that's how the Lord speaks to Joshua. And then in Joshua 1, when we did our study, which was very difficult to teach, because yes, I want all of us to lean on the promises of the Lord. But then we looked at the history of Joshua. And, you know, when he was younger, when all Israel was defiled, who wasn't? Him and Moses. Him and Moses. He made choices in his life to honor the Lord. Just like with, with Paul, you know, and, you know, it, it is no longer I who live. You know, I am crucified with Christ, he says. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, Paul says that. 
of his own life, that he's crucified with Christ, that it is no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. Does that mean that that doesn't apply to us? Well, it doesn't mean that that verse cannot apply to us. The, the verse certainly can apply to us. And I also desire that verse to apply to us. But no one can force that on another person. Because to be crucified with Christ, a person needs to reckon the old man dead, reckon the old woman dead. Or, you know, the crack, the sex, the alcohol, the strippers, the gambling, that's old man, that's old woman. Those days are over. That person has been crucified with Christ. That person in, in, in water baptism, the water baptism, that's like your burial site. You go down in the water, that's, you know, here lies, you know, putting your name. You go down in the water, here lies Joe, here lies Jane, here lies whatever it is. And then you come up out of the water, new creation. The problem today is that there's defunct pastors who do not teach. And so they say, well, you know, you're up out of the water, you know, praise the Lord, you're a Christian now. But the Christian and the person who be, who is baptized, everything is beautiful because, you know, they believe in Jesus Christ, water baptism. But because of the defunct pastors who don't teach to say to that Christian, male, female, young, old, okay, the old nature, that's dead. You know, we reckon the old nature dead. We reckon the old woman dead, the old man dead. That guy's dead. So the sex, the drugs, the alcohol, the crack, the Buddha, Mary, uh, 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 the Ouija boards, the occult, the cocaine, cooking spoons, whatever it is, those days are over. You see, that's the old guy. That's the old lady. Who's buried, you know, put a put a tombstone at the water. You know, here lies Joe, here lies Jane, here lies whatever or whoever. That guy's dead, the lady's dead. And we walk in the newness of Christ. And in so doing, there's a transformation of mind, a transformation of heart to where, you know what? You don't even think the way you used to. You don't even think the way you used to. It's like, you know, wow, I used to do the crack. Now I can't even stand it. I used to do alcohol. Now I can't even stand it. I used to do the sex. Now I can't even stand it. I used to do the Buddha, the Ouija boards, and I can't even stand that. Why? Because the old nature is dead. And that's when Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because Christ is in his temple. You see? Christ is in his temple. A lot of times Christians today, and it's not to bash Christians at all. I look at the pulpit because the pastors, they don't teach. But a lot of times Christians, oh, I'm crucified with Christ. Oh, yes, you know, I lean on the promises of God. I'm crucified with Christ. And yes, I'm going to be victorious and all these things. Well, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's up with the sex? What's up with the crack? What's up with the lines? What's up with the gambling? Now, it's one thing if a person is a new believer because they need to learn and understand these things. But if a person's been a Christian, a person's been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, and they got the sex, they got the Buddha, they got the Ouija board, they do the crack, they do the, you know, the gambling, the, the, the casinos, and this, it's like, well, okay, now we're in a different ballgame. Now we're getting into leaven territory. 
Levin territory. These are folks that there needs to be separation from. Just like the Bible says, you know, don't regard them as a non-believer. You know, that's between them and the Lord. But the remnant, they have a choice to make. And the remnant separates from the leaven. That's the biblical formula. That's what happens. Now, if they're a new believer, they need to learn. Okay, we're Christians, you know, no more crack, you know, you know, that instead of hanging out with your, your, your crackhead friends like you used to, you know, hang out with me. You know, we're going to go do, we're not going to do crack, you know, we're going to go you know, like eat a burger or something, you know, we're going to go instead of doing crack, we're going to eat a burger, you know, or instead of, you know, doing, going to the strippers, you know, we're going to go uh, play basketball, we're going to go shoot some hoops, you know, it's like, because a young Christian, they need to learn, they need to understand but a person's been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, and they're still monkeying around with those things. It's like, okay, if that's the life they want to live, okay, that's between them and the Lord. But the remnant, the remnant is the ones that have to separate. In a lot of churches, that never happens. Because the shepherds are disqualified. I mean, we don't see full package shepherds like, you know, in our study in the pastoral epistles. We don't see the full package. And so all of a sudden, the waters become muddy. And then you have Christians that are really the leaven and the leaven shouldn't be there. I mean, they sh- the church should be more like 2 Corinthians. And instead of being like 2 Corinthians, they're like 1 Corinthians and a 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So instead of being like, Second Corinthians, which is precursory to moving forward to like a Philippians type of church, they stay a First Corinthians chapter three church because of the defunct pastors who do not teach and do not keep the house clean. And because of that, you have Christians who say, Oh, I'm crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Come on, let's go do crack. Let's go do the sex. Let's go do the Buddha. Let's go do the, the Ouija boards. Let's go gambling. Let's go to the casino and we'll pray for big winnings. We'll go to the casino. We'll fast and we'll pray for big winnings. Oh, it is no longer I who live. I'm crucified with Christ. It's like, wait a second. I don't see crucifixion, my friend. You see? And you say, like, whoa, that's, that's kind of hardcore. I know it is. I know it is. But understand, there is no victory. So let's look at the, let's look at the leaven. Let's look at the leaven. So you have a first Corinthians three type of church where, you know, milk drinkers. Remember Paul, he's a, a well of knowledge, which is a gift of the spirit. And he says to the Corinthian saints, you know, I wish I could teach you deep spiritual things, but I can't. Because you're still babies. It's the equivalent of, you know, you have a a five-month-old baby and you're going to feed the baby pork chops. No, it doesn't work that way. Now, one day the baby can eat pork chops, but not now. The baby needs milk. The problem with the Corinthian church is that they were on milk for too long. They stayed on milk. So you have the leaven inside the church. Consider the heart and the mind of leaven. The sex, the drugs, the alcohol, the extortion. Remember we just studied about extortion? We we studied that, extortion. And a lot of times people like to homogenize it. Oh, it's extortion. I don't do that. Oh, I I, 
I just, you know, I, I use the, you know, the extortion, you know, they, they like to homogenize it. Well, you know, I don't do extortion, but, you know, I'm so smart. I'm so intellectual. I use uh, leverage. I use leverage. I have a friend who's an attorney and he always talks about leverage, 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 leverage. He's not a believer yet, you know, and oh, leverage, leverage, leverage. It's, it's okay. You know, I get it. I get it. Now, as a Christian, I understand it's carnal. And, you know, we have these brief conversations, little conversations. And he's not a Christian yet. But he always applies this logic and intellect. It's like, wait a second. You see that in the world, but that's the world. What happens when it comes into the church? Don't call it leverage. Call it extortion. And you take extortion. You lump that in with the drunkards, with the sex heads, with the drug. You you lump it in with that. It's the carnal nature. And the carnal nature has to be dealt with. I say dealt with. I don't mean like, you know, dealt with like a stonum, but. Let's get you cleaned up. Repent, 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 repent. Then you get into deeper doctrinal matters. Where it's like, you know, once saved, always saved. Which is a lie. The Bible doesn't teach once saved, always saved. Just just knowing the fact that names can come out of the book of life. That obliterates once saved, always saved. I mean, you remember, we we reflect on Luke chapter 8 from time to time. The short-term believer. A person who believes in Christ for a while. And in time of temptation, falls away. The once saved, always saved is unbiblical. But then you have doctrinal matters where people believe in once saved, always saved. And then they figure, why do I have to repent? I'm already a Christian. Why do I have to repent? You see? And then their lives just get stinky. It's like, you know, why do I have to shower? You know, I showered when I was 10 years old. Why do I have to shower? I'm 20 years old. I'm 30 years old. I'm 40 years old. I showered when I was 10 years old. Why do I have to shower? Imagine how nasty that person's going to be, how stinky that person's going to be, how just straight up funky that person's going to be. You're not going to want to be around such a person because they're just straight up funk. But what about in the church? Why do I have to repent? I came to Christ when I was 10 years old. Why do I have to be clean again? I was already clean when I was 10 years old. You see, and to get right with the Lord, it's to repent, 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 repent. I mean, we reflect on Revelation 2 and 3 quite a bit. Seven churches. Five, the majority, are told to repent. Why would they have to repent? If they became, say they all became Christians at age 10, why does the Lord, red letters, why does the Lord say repent? You see, the one saved, always saved theory 
does not hold up to scripture. You're a sex head. You're an extortioner. You're alcoholic. You're, you know, these works of the flesh. Repent. Repent. Let's get you cleaned up. It's not to say like, you know, leaven is going to burn in hell. Now, leaven can burn in hell, but, you know, balls in your court. I mean, if you're leaven, <laughs> if you're leaven, you know, hopefully you're, you're the remnant, but, you know, <laughs> if you're leaven, if you're leaven, let's get you cleaned up. You see, it's so beautiful because it's, repent, repent, let's get you cleaned up. And because you have defunctness at the pulpit, not the pews, at the pulpit, you have pastors who want to be everybody's friend. They want to be, have the social media likes and be an influencer. And, you know, they have their, their rock, rock star voice. They do the highlights in their hair and they're just fools, stupid. Instead of teaching the word of God and sound doctrine, all of a sudden, Things become muddy in the church. So let's look at the extortion. Let's look at the sex in the church. Let's look at the alcohol in the church. Let's look at the gambling and the Buddha and the Ouija boards and the occult that are inside the church. The works of the flesh that are inside the church. In order for those works to be there, those are, those are the, those are the things that are evident. The works of the flesh, the sex. The alcohol, the extortion, those are the works of the flesh, which are made manifest in the course of time. But if you take a little deeper look, what's going on inside that temple? You see, so many times people say, oh, you know, the, this guy, you know, he cheated on his wife. This guy, look, he's, you know, you know, strung out on crack. Oh, look, this guy, he's doing cooking the spoons and he's, you know, on the street corner. And oh, this guy, he's at gambling. He's been gambling all night. This guy's with the strippers and the prostitutes. And yes, that's bad. Absolutely, those things are bad. But that's when it's manifest. That's when it's made evident. But you hit the rewind button. I mean, say it's made manifest today. Like today, like right now, it's like we, like we find out like, wow, you know, there's the sex, drugs, alcohol, the whole extortion, the whole nine yards. Say that it's known a known thing today. And yes, it's bad. But what about a week ago? What was going on inside the mind of the person? Male, female, I don't care. Young, old, I don't care. What was going on inside the mind of the person? And that's just a week ago. What about the prior month? What about the prior year? What about the prior five years? What about the prior decade? Satan plays the long game. He can attack instantly, but he tends to play the long game. You see, what's going on inside the mind? And people say, you know, oh, it's so terrible this happened. Yes, it's terrible that it happened. But what about a month prior? What about two months prior? What about a year prior? You see, what was going on inside the temple? Inside the mind, inside the heart? When the guy was... 
thinking about the sex, when the lady was thinking about the drugs, when the kid was thinking about the Buddha, when the kid was thinking about, you know, the, the Ouija boards. The manifestation, you know, that's the manifestation, which is bad. But what about when we hit the rewind button, what was going on a month prior? A year prior. And why is it they go to church on Sundays, they go to church on Wednesdays, they do whatever, they, they go to church and do it. And why is it that there's a guy at the pulpit who doesn't teach? A guy at the pulpit who doesn't say the sex, the Ouija boards, the extortion, the occult, the Buddha, the crack, the lines, the cooking spoons. These aren't good. These are behaviors that are unbecoming of the Christian. So then in the mind, now this is before the sin is made manifest, so that in the mind, the heart, the mind can be right with the Lord. Because a person, a guy sitting in the pews can realize like, you know, like, oh my goodness, I'm a loser. I'm supposed to provide for my family. And, you know, I'm just, you know, I, I'm a bum. I don't do anything. Like, oh my goodness. And then a person, a guy can repent. You got a, a sex head doing his pornography, his strippers, and they can sit in the pews and hear the pastor say, look, you know, this is bad. This is evil. This isn't right, you know, and, you know, these are what losers do. And then all of a sudden, a guy can realize like, oh my goodness, I'm a loser. And I have to be a vessel that brings honor to the Lord. And so now I repent. You see? Before the manifestation of the sin, we address what's going on in the heart. Because a person can realize, a person can learn. A guy is sitting in the pews, but instead, with defunct pastors, remember, only the clean can clean. New wine only flows from new wineskin. And because you have defunct pastors, you have Christians who never learn these things. And in never learning these things, they apply the promises of God. It's not to say that we cannot lean on the promises of God. We absolutely can. But what happens when, say, there's the sex and the drugs and the extortion and, you know, all kinds of works of the flesh, unaddressed, unrepented of. And then that person goes to war, spiritual war. I mean, we have this, we're in Joshua 11, kind of a long introduction, but I mean, we're in Joshua 11. And you see the war footing of Israel and you see victory after victory after victory. There was no victory with Achan. And this is Israel according to the flesh. But what about the Christian? What about the Christian? In spiritual warfare. You see? And not just spiritual warfare. I mean, there's the aspect of spiritual warfare unto ourselves. But what about on offense? Remember our study in the book of Acts? If you've been with us for a while, you've been walking with us for a while, there's a defensive posture, but then there's the offensive posture. Sometimes Christians go on offense when they have no business going on offense. I don't say that to sound, you know, judgmental or anything. But, you know, there's anacrino, diacrino, and, you know, uh, uh, crino, anacrino, and diacrino. There's derivatives of that. Just making an assessment. 
There's only one that's forbidden of crino, adacrino, and diacrino. Only one is forbidden. Sometimes, oh, you know, that, that's so judgmental. You just call like I see it. You know, anacrino, diacrino, make an assessment. That's all it is. Just make an assessment. And Christians attempt to engage in spiritual warfare and go on offense, attempting to lean on the promises of God. And just like Ai in the study in the in Joshua chapter 7, exactly like Ai, Christians suffer defeat. And then Satan whispers in their ear, Your God is a liar. Why are you gonna believe in God? Why are you gonna believe in his promises when he lied to you? You see? And then people slowly fall away. Enter into apostasy. A defection away from truth. And because they had defunct pastors, they never understood formula. To understand that yes, a Christian can go on offense. But Achan? Gotta be dealt with. The heart of Achan the mindset of Achan that said, you know what? I know that God likes this. I know that God doesn't like this, but I'm going to do it anyway because I like it. You see? And Christians go into war and they lose. They suffer casualties. The church suffers casualties. The name of Jesus Christ is blasphemed because Christians, they don't understand formula. Now, I don't blame the Christians. I don't blame the pews. But I absolutely blame the pulpit. Who in the world is the pastor? Who is the guy at the pulpit that is supposed to be teaching? He says he's called of the Lord. And if he's called of the Lord, then we shouldn't see these things. Who is the guy? You see? Introduce me to your pastor. I want to know who this guy is. Who is the guy that permits these things? Who are the elders that permit these things? Point them out to me. See? Because we absolutely can be victorious in Christ. We can absolutely lean on the promises of God. But when the formula is wrong, I mean, we look at, just consider sex. I mean, you know, <laughs> not like that, but I mean like the, the sex in the church and, you know, all the all the derivatives of that, you know, the strippers, pornography, you know, prostitutes and, you know, a guy partakes of those things. A guy partakes of the drugs and the alcohol and the extortion. There's that mindset. Where you see the manifestation of the sin, but a week prior, a month prior, a year prior, two years prior, five years prior, there was fertile ground in the heart for holy seed to take root in the heart, cultivated by the Spirit of the Lord, prayed for by the overseers in the church. Cultivated by the overseers in the church. Remember, when Paul speaks of, you know, being God's 
co-worker? Making the distinction between worker and field? Now you take the mind of the person with the sex, the drugs, the alcohol, the extortion. You take that mindset. Remember, the, the manif- we're, we're before the manifestation of the sin. So say the sin is found out today. And then we hit the rewind button five years ago where, you know, it's the, the manifestation of the, like the sin hasn't happened. We're five years before the sin happens. But you see, the mind is going into crazy town. In that vessel, the mind is going into crazy town. Now, when the mind goes into crazy town, it is written, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Bible says God will not hear. You see? Now consider the prayer life of that guy or of that gal. Consider the prayer life of that person. So you take today, the sin is found out. Sex, drugs, alcohol, extortion, whatever it is. Oh, it's leverage, it's leverage. No, let's call it extortion. Let's be real. Say it's found out today. And you hit the rewind button a year ago, two years ago. Three years ago, when there was no manifestation of the sex, there was no manifestation of cooking spoons. But what was going on in the mind two years ago, three years ago? And if the temptation, the, you know, Satan, the barrage of Satan in the demonic realm, if that started, you know, two years ago, the sway, the the seduction, the spiritual seduction into the ways of evil and the ways of wickedness. Say that started two years ago. And the Christian was not equipped. The Christian was not taught about spiritual warfare. And all of a sudden, the process of seduction begins. The guy's thinking about this. The guy's thinking about that. The guy's thinking about that. Then this, the lady's thinking about this. The lady's thinking about that. And the Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, that the Lord doesn't hear the prayers. So for two years, you have a guy that's been praying. For two years, you have a lady that's been praying, but at the same time, regarding iniquity in his heart, iniquity in her heart. You see, and people say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of your prayers. Your prayers aren't working. Well, sometimes prayers don't work for a reason. You see, formula needs to be understood. Holy formula. So that Christians can sit in the pews. We can sit in the pews and understand. You see, like a guy can sit in the pew. A, a teenage boy can sit in the pews and know that all his friends are doing that, you know, pornography. And a teenage boy, you know, 13 years old, and all his friends are doing pornography on their phones, on their computers, and whatever. And, you know, there's the marketplace for sex, and his, all his friends. And then he realizes, you know what? Those guys are losers. 
I'm not going to, I'm not going to fall for that. I'm not going to do that. And he purposes in his heart. He's 13 years old and he sees all his friends at school. They're doing all these things. He's like, no, I'm not because I'm a vessel of the Lord. And in his mind, he purposes in his heart. He purposes in his mind. No, you know what? I want to be hardcore for the Lord. I don't want to be wishy-washy. I don't want to be a milk drinker. And you know, a kid might be like, you know, so so what if I drink milk now? I'm not going to drink milk tomorrow. I'm not going to drink milk next year. I'm going to move on to perfection. And then a kid, you know, studying the Bible and, you know, what is taught at the pulpit can realize, you know, like, oh, man, I desire a wife, a 13, now he's 14, 15, and all his friends, he, he separated from them because they were bad influences, and now he's not doing the sex like his friends are, and his other friend, you know, the gateway drug started doing pot, and, you know, his other friends started doing meth, you know, nice and cheap. And the kid's like, no, I'm not, you know, I separated from those guys. So now there's less of a threat upon him. Think about his prayer life. When this 14-year-old boy is not, his mind isn't, you know, there's no regard for iniquity. Because he's learned, he's equipped. And, you know, I desire a wife. I desire a wife. He's 15, 16. Oh, I desire a wife. And then, you know, he learns about, you know, providing for the family, not being a, a loser, you know, not being a deadbeat. And he learns about this. Then he learns about marriage. And then he says, well, you know, I, I don't desire a wife anymore. <laughs> you know, I want to serve the Lord, you know. You see how beautiful this is? How powerful it is? And sometimes, you, oh, you know, that's too hardcore. You teach too hardcore. It's like, okay, I get it. I understand. But, I mean, like, say you and me, we go to the gym. Say we're like, you know, super chubby. You and me, we're super chubby. And, you know, the fitness instructor, you know, male, female, it doesn't matter. But say you and me, we're like super chubby. And we go to the gym. And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the fitness instructor says, you know, you know, get on the treadmill or, you know, lift weights or do the, oh, that's too hard. I don't want to lift weights. I don't want to walk on the treadmill. I don't want to jog on the treadmill. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And then what would it say of the fitness instructor who says, yeah, you're right. No, let's go get some tacos. Let's go eat some burgers. Let's go eat a pizza. You're right. You know, let's not walk on the treadmill. No, let's, let's go to the all you can eat place. You see, it doesn't work that way. Now, the fitness instructor's not going to, you know, uh, you know, run us in the dirt. The fitness instructor might say, well, okay, let's just, you know, let's just walk. Nice little slow pace. Let's just walk. Nothing fancy. Let's just walk. And in the course of time, in the course of time, we get stronger and stronger and stronger. You see? But it's the same in the church. And it's a strength not of self. It's a strength of the Lord. You see, because that's what happens with equipping of the word. Being washed of the word. The word of God. Holiness unto the Lord. Lives that are a sweet aroma unto the Lord. And then straight up warfare. And not warfare where, you know, we have to run away in, in retreat. It's warfare. 
But it's not defeat after defeat after defeat after defeat. It is victory upon victory upon victory upon victory. You see? In the last days which have begun, Satan knows his time is short. The demonic realm is intensifying their efforts. And don't forget what happens when a man is freed by the Lord and a demon leaves a guy, a demon leaves a lady. You know what happens? Those demons come back. Those demons come back and not by themselves. They come back with friends that are more wicked than that demon. And if that believer, if that Christian is not prepared for that fight, the Bible says the state of that person is worse than the first. Have you ever met people like that? I have. Their population is going to increase in the last days. Why? Because of defunct pastors. Pastors don't teach. Pastors don't equip. Pastors don't train for war. Pastors don't train. And you're not going to see victory. You're going to see defeat. You're going to see Christians saved from a certain lifestyle when they were in sin. Christians saved and beautiful. But because they're milk drinkers and they have a steady diet of milk, Demons are going to come back and that Christian, their state without fighting off those demons. Now, all of a sudden, the state of that guy, the state of that gal is going to be worse than when he was initially saved. That's what the Bible says about spiritual warfare. It says more about spiritual warfare, but that's what the Bible teaches. These are things that we're going to see more and more in the last days. And we already see it. Have you ever seen somebody? They come to Christ. And you rejoice. There's a moment of rejoicing. Like, wow, you're a Christian. You know, praise the Lord. But then two years later, three years later, five years later, ten years later, they're not just sex heads anymore. Now they're sex heads and crackheads and gamblers and Buddha and Ouija board and the occult. You see, the last state is worse than the first. These are things that we're going to see intensified in the last days. Now, this is a long introduction to Joshua 11. But in this war footing of Israel, there are absolutely applications for you and me as Christians today. Absolutely. And sometimes, you know, Christians, we read, you know, Joshua 11 or passages in the Old Testament. We just figure, well, you know, the Old Testament, you know, we got Jabin, Hazor, Jobab, Madon, Shimron, Akshaf. We have, you know, the Hineroth. Uh, we have Dor. We have the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Hivites. We have Hermit. We have Mizpah. And it's like, well, you know, that that's no relation to me. So, you know, I'm just going to disregard it, you know. Yeah, I got my verses. I got my, my chapter in for today. So, you know, I'm done reading the Bible. I'm done studying the Bible for today. Because we got, we got our verses in. We got our chapters in. Without realizing the formula for victory. Now, this is Israel according to the flesh. But how much more for the believer, you and me? 
How much more for the believer in our war footing, which is not carnal. In our war footing. Yes, there's a defensive posture, but there's also an offensive posture to go on offense. Not against the flesh, but against the spirit. I mean, look at Paul when Paul would fight. You would see like demons being cast out of people. But then, you know, he'd get arrested. He'd get like beat, you know, beat up. It's like, wow, well, he fought according to the spirit, but he didn't fight according to the flesh. You see? That's covenants, understanding the rules of engagement. When we understand formula, it's so powerful when formula is understood. Because now all of a sudden, a Christian, you and me together, you know, I didn't want to, I never want to teach like, you know, oh, this is for you. This is for you. And I'm going to go live my life however I want to do. No, that's hypocrisy. That's like, you know, Romans 2. It opens the door to Romans 2. Don't do that. If, if you're a pastor and you're listening, never teach at the people and, you know, you go do your own stuff. You know, it doesn't work that way. I mean, you can do that, but hello, lake of fire. Don't do that. You know, I, I urge you not to do it, but, you know, I can't force anybody to do anything. You have a choice to make. Balls in your court. If you're a pastor, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a hypocrite. Teach the Bible, but teach the Bible when you have applied the Bible to your life. Don't be like, you know, no package. Don't be package one, package two, package three. Be the full package. If you're a pastor, if you're a teacher, be full package. Be full package. Because new wine only flows from new wineskins. You ever see pastors that are doing, doing the sex and the drugs and the alcohol and they stand at the pulpit? Knowing that new wine can only be held from new wineskins. What in the world is being poured into the saints? What in the world is being poured into the congregation? I'll give you the answer. Nothing holy. So what's the assembly? What's the gathering of the saints? If there's no new wine, what's the gathering of the saints? I'll give you the answer again. Social club. You see? Well, what are the implications of that? Well, I'll give you the answer a third time. Laodicea. You see? Jesus Christ on the outside. And so when we read these passages, as new covenant believers, there are absolutely implications for you and me in our war footing, in your war war footing, in my war footing, and as one in our war footing. And so we continue in our study. In verse 4. So they went out, they and all their armies with them, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude with very many horses and chariots. You see, it's a lot of people that are formed against Israel. A lot of people. In verse 5. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. 
So now you have these opposing forces. As many people as the sands, multitude upon multitude upon multitude with their horses and chariots to fight against Israel. Now look at the prior victories of Israel. You got Jericho, victory. You have Ai, victory, but victory after defeat. And we know why. We know why. Because of Achan. Achan's been dealt with and they have victory in Ai. Then you have the previous previous alliances that were formed against Israel. And, you know, instead of Israel taking defeat, no, those alliances formed against Israel, they took defeat. Now you have this multitude that is like the sand. Now, there's something interesting to note here. Joshua, beautiful, beautiful Joshua. He's not a military tactician. I mean, he didn't go to military academy and learn all these, you know, history of war and study the art of combat and the art of war. And he didn't study, you know, tactical moves. He didn't study this. He didn't study that. And I love that. I love that. Remember earlier when we looked at King Jabin and, you know, we looked at his cunning, intelligence and skillful. And I said, it's beautiful. You might be like, what are you talking about? He's beautiful. But it's beautiful in this regard. Joshua doesn't have that. Joshua doesn't have the, he's not a, like a general, like a military tactician. I mean, if you ever been around generals, I mean, like, like, or colonels, you know, for full bird, full bird colonels, they think differently. These are tacticians. They study war. They, they, multiple aspects of war, multiple levels of war, tiers of war. They, they study history. They study past battles. They study all these things and implement variations of sometimes create new. They do all, they, Study history. I'm not, sometimes you see it in lower level echelon of leadership, but you know, when you get into the colonel level, they, these are the tacticians. That's like Jabin, the tactician. He hears that Israel is having victory upon victory upon victory under the leadership of Joshua, and he wants victory too against Israel. And so he forms this coalition. And this coalition, all their armies, like we see in verse 4, all their armies with them, as many as the sand is the seashore in multitude. And it's not just the people. They got their horses. They got their chariots. And Joshua, he's not a general. He didn't go to military academy. But you know what he does? He obeys the Lord. I love that. That's what, you know, like verse one, you might say, why does he say this is beautiful? That's what I mean when it's beautiful. Remember I said, you know, this is beautiful, but then I like, there's a little pause. It's like, well, you know, I'll explain it more. We'll, we'll get to that more. And here we are. That, that's what I mean when I said that, you know, oh, this is so beautiful that Jabin, you know, he was kind of like the, the general, the tactician, military uh, tactics. And Joshua, he doesn't have that. But what he does have is the Lord. Oneness with the Lord. 
Obedience unto the Lord. And obedience unto the Lord, it's not just right here, right now in verse 5. His obedience unto the Lord was decades in the past. His obedience of the Lord started much, much, much earlier than this. You see? You see how beautiful that is? Because sometimes, Christians, sometimes we start to make comparisons. Comparison is the thief of joy. Oh, I'm not smart like this guy. Oh, I'm not rich like this guy. Oh, I don't have a car like this guy. Oh, I don't have a house like this guy. Oh, I don't do this like this guy. Or, you know, it becomes carnal. But sometimes it's even spiritual. Well, I don't have the gifts like this guy. I don't have the gifts like this guy. But when there's intimacy with the Lord, what else do you need? I mean, let's be straight up. You have oneness with the Lord, intimacy with Him. What else do you need? People can have their riches. They can have their mansions. They can have their car. They can have their fat paychecks. But do they have the Lord? And when you start to make these comparisons, understand that comparison is the thief of joy. But then you see it when it comes to spiritual gifts too. It's like, wow, I don't... I don't have the gift like this guy does. I don't have the gift like this guy does. I don't have like this lady does, like this lady does, like this lady, like this guy, like this kid, like this old guy, like this old lady. I don't have these gifts. But when you have the Lord and intimacy with him, the gifts of the Lord, the gifts of the Spirit, they're given by the Lord. Just, it takes time. The Lord gives how he gifts. I know Christians that get down on the, get down on themselves sometimes like, oh, I, I don't know the Bible like this guy does. I don't know the Bible like this lady does. I don't know the Bible like this guy or that this pastor, you know, he teaches and he knows the Bible. So now listen, sometimes pastors, they get like a, a elite mentality. Don't do, if you're a pastor, don't you dare do that. Don't you dare do that. Remember the rugby match when we studied the book of Romans? Remember the rugby match? I mean, if you're listening for the first time, listen to our study through Romans, you'll understand more about the rugby match. If you're a pastor, don't you dare. And I know people who assume to be pastors and they lord over and they almost like flaunt their knowledge of the Bible. Oh, I know the Bible like the back of my hand. I know this. You have nothing against me. You can't come against me with the Bible because I know the Bible. I went to Bible college. I went to seminary. I went to university. I got my degree in theology. I got... No, that's pride. That's pride. You know what? You, if you're a pastor, you know what you're doing to the flock of God? Not your flock. They do not belong to you. They belong to the Lord. Do you know what you're doing in the heart, in the mind of that precious, precious lamb, that precious, precious sheep? Do you know what you're doing inside of his heart, inside of her heart? You're hurting it. You're hurting it. 
I don't know. I'm just going to say this, but if I was a rich guy and I had a shepherd to tend my flock and I found out that he was hurting my sheep, I don't want to sound carnal or anything, but you know, it wouldn't be good for that shepherd. That's just me. If it was my flock and I found out a shepherd that I hired was hurting not his flock, my flock, my sheep, my lamb. If I found out about it, stand by for that shepherd. How much more for our father in heaven? Shepherd, pastor. You see? If you're a young Christian, or even, you know, not even a young Christian, you haven't been a Christian for very long, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, and you're realizing like, oh my goodness, I'm a milk. I don't know the Bible, I don't know the Bible. Well, you know, let's give it time. Give it time. It takes time. It takes time. You might be a milk drinker today, but tomorrow we're eating pork chops. You see? And when I say tomorrow, I don't mean tomorrow. I mean like, you know, maybe a week later, two weeks later, two months later, a year later. You might be, baby, you might be a milk drinker today. But next year, bring on the pork chops. Bring on the ribeye. You see? It's so beautiful. We're one in Christ. We are one in Christ. Don't feel, you know, knowledge of the word of God is a gift of the spirit. Don't don't feel bummed out if you don't have, you know, knowledge of the Bible. Don't feel bummed out. But if you're a milk drinker, you understand. It's like, okay, you know, understand that knowledge is a gift, but it's not the greatest gift. Knowledge will fail. Tongues will fail. Those who know, know in part. The greatest gift is love. And sometimes you have pastors who lord over, oh, I know the Bible like the back of my hand. Don't you dare come at me like this because I went to Bible college. I went this. Without obedience, that pastor is sowing seeds of judgment. That's how a pastor's heart can get hard. You see? Don't feel down. If, if you don't have gifts of the Spirit... No, but keep your heart nice and soft before the Lord. Jello. We want soft jello. Keep your heart soft jello before the Lord. And spiritual gifts, they will come. But the greatest gift is love. You see? And that's what I love so much about this Joshua. He's not a tactician. He's not a military tactician. He doesn't have this skillful i mean look at jabin he this jabin the king of hazor he's like assembling and gathering all these these mighty men with the horses and chariots very you know this military tactician and he wants to win this war against israel and joshua and all joshua has is the lord i don't mean to say it like oh that's all he has no i mean it like That's all he has. And it's beautiful. Because that's all he needs. Intimacy with the Lord. What about you? What about you? Is Jesus all you have? 
Because if the answer is yes, what more do you need? When Jesus is all you have, praise the Lord, rejoice. What more do any of us need? And so you have this gathering against Joshua and Israel. In verse 5, it says to fight against Israel. In verse 6, but the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel or killed before Israel. Tomorrow, about this time. I mean, put yourself in Joshua's shoes. Put yourself in Joshua's sandals for a moment. You're not a military tactician and all you have is the Lord. I don't mean to say that in a negative sense, but you know, very seriously, all you have is the Lord and you understand that's all you need. And when you're in Joshua's sandals, it's not like, you know, you're intimate with the Lord right here. You've been, you've had intimacy with the Lord 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. You've always had intimacy with the Lord. And the Lord says here, don't be afraid. Because tomorrow about this time, these men of war, they're going to be dead. Notice it's the Lord that initiated communication. I mean, you know, Joshua didn't pray to him. You know, oh Lord, you know, this; these armies are formed against us. No, it's the Lord that initiated communication. And not to suggest that Joshua couldn't pray or wouldn't pray to the Lord. But don't forget intimacy is, there's, it's, it, there's two ways. Your intimacy with the Lord, the Lord's intimacy with you. Remember, Jesus says, abide in me. No period. He says, abide in me and I in you. Intimacy. Oneness. You see? And when you put yourself in Joshua's sandals, I mean, you know, you know, I, I know the Lord told me not to be afraid. There's a lot of people, though, you know. It's not just one king. It's king upon king upon king upon king with their warriors, with their horses, with their chariots. And then, boom, God speaks to him, reassuring him, providing him comfort. About this time tomorrow, all this multitude, they're going to be dead. I'll take care of it. You see? Joshua's not a tactician. He's not developing strategy. And in obedience to the Lord, before the war, before the battle, the battle's already won because he has the Lord. You see, the battle is already won because he has the Lord. And the formula is right. No Achan. No Achan. Achan's been dealt with. You see, victory upon victory upon victory upon victory upon victory. No Achan. There was defeat with Achan. You see? But it's the exact same with you and me. Not according to the flesh. According to the Spirit. 
Don't expect victory. If you know, with the sex and the drugs and the alcohol, the extortion, do not expect victory. Expect the opposite. Expect defeat. Expect casualties. Not because you can't lean on God's promises. But there's a very specific formula. Just like we see here in the camp of Israel. Victory upon victory, no Achan. And the Lord says about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. He's going to kill them. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So God says, the people, I got it. The horses, you got it. You see? Now, when we look at the horses, consider them to be like tanks. Consider them to be like tanks where, you know, you have these horses and some of them were just, you know, just the straight up horse and some of them with the straight up uh, chariots, you know, the chariots, who knows what was on the chariots could be, you know, a, a group of guys with javelins could be some guys with their bow and arrow, just weapons of war. When we look at the horses here, consider them like tanks. And when the Lord says you shall hamstring their horses to hamstring is to cut the tendons on their legs. The horses become immobilized. I mean, in, in modern warfare, it would be like, you know, when you consider the horses like tanks, it's like, you know, uh, you know, the Lord, the Lord's going to take care of the people. The Lord's going to take care of the troops, but you, you take care of the tank tracks. You know, you take care of the tracks on the, on the tank so that, you know, it can't move anymore. And that's what the Lord is saying about the horses. I'll take care of the people. You take care of the horses and you burn their chariots with fire. And when you take care of the horses, it's not to kill the horses. It's to cut the tendons on their legs. And these are war horses. Now, if you have, have had any exposure to war animals, sometimes war horses, they're different. They're not like stable horses. They're different. They are calloused from war. The war horses. Modern warfare you mean, there's still certain elements of warfare where they still use horses. But there are elements of warfare and platoons of certain units where they utilize dogs, war dogs. They're different. I mean, when you look at like World War II, the, you know, World War II, American forces, they used dogs. They had, you know, regiments that had like, you know, they put dogs in service and they were war dogs. And after the war, when the war was done, there was a command given to kill the dogs. Because these dogs were dangerous. They couldn't be domesticated. They were, they were war dogs, but, you know, the war is over and to have these dogs and to bring them back home, they're going to kill people. These dogs will like, you know, you put them in a home and they're going to kill the kids and, you know, kill the dad, kill the mom, kill everybody because they're war dogs. And some units, they said, okay, we're going to kill the dogs. But there were other units that said, no, we're not going to do that. They disobeyed orders. And I'm an animal guy, you know, I kind of like that. 
They disobey the orders. They says, no, we're not going to kill these dogs. We're going to pour all our efforts into making sure that these dogs are taken care of. Now, you might be listening and like, you know, they're just dogs. You know, why is this such a big deal? But if you've had exposure to service dogs, especially in war, I mean, you know, you might be blind, you know, and like you have a service dog. It's like, you know, it's that service dog is like an extension of you. But in a war environment, those service dogs are I mean, they, they, they smell things in the air. They can smell like, you know, chemicals on a bomb. They can do all type of different types of detection. They can enter certain fields of fire because of weight ratios. You know, like a human steps on something and it's going to blow up, but a dog steps on something, you know, their, their footprint, their little paw print, you know, they, they, they do a lot. I don't want to get into like graphic details, but they do a lot. It's an extension of the team, an extension of the unit, an extension of the platoon. And in World War II, some of these units, they says, okay, the order came that we're going to kill these dogs, so we're going to kill these dogs. But there were other units that says, no, we're not going to kill these dogs. Because these dogs saved our lives. If it wasn't for these dogs, our whole team would be dead. Our whole unit, our whole platoon would be dead. You say, well, it's just a dog. That's not just a dog. These are war dogs. Now, you might be wondering, like, why in the world is this guy making a big deal about it? What's a huge deal? Because Israel, the Lord doesn't say kill their horses. He says hamstring their horses, wound their horses. Cut the tendons on their legs so they can't move anymore. They can't move like they, they, they might be able to walk, but it's like a gimpy walk. It's not like they're going to run and, and, and mow down, a, you know, a, 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 like a, a flank of troops. Like they would had they not been hamstrung. But these war horses... Assembled under Jabin. There's going to be a future use for them. Yes, in war. Again, and you know, through breeding and a future generation. Uh, I'm speaking about the horses. You know, breed the horses, and then you know the the horses have you know uh, little horses. I don't know, I don't say babies, but you know, they're like baby horses. So, so like the horses have their baby horses and then, you know, they're, they're, they're bred. So like those baby horses, they're not wounded, but there's going to be a future use, but no longer under the leadership of Jabin. It's in the camp of Israel. Yes, there's going to be an element of warfare. In the camp on the side of Israel. But there's also going to be usage for building and construction. And looking forward into the future. Like, you know, at this juncture in Joshua 11. Solomon is going to build a temple. And horses are going to be put in use. 
and he might still be wondering, why in the world is this guy going on and on and on and on about horses? I want to say something to the veterans. Sometimes it's God who does the hamstringing. Sometimes it's God who does the hamstringing. And you feel the immobilization of being hamstrung. And you consider it to be a bad thing. But it's not a bad thing at all. It's actually quite beautiful. When it's the Lord who does the hamstringing. And just like a war horse or a war dog, you've been scarred. You've been scarred from things that you've been exposed to. Where on the battlefield, you are beautiful. You are valiant but to come back home with your wife and your kids and family it's dangerous for them because you're a weapon of war These are things that veterans have a hard time with, a very, very hard time. People say, you know, you know uh, 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 reach out to a veteran, talk to a veteran. I don't know about you, but the veterans I know, don't talk to them. I mean, that's just, you know, the, the, the vets I know, they will not open up. They will not open up. But I speak to veterans as a veteran. Valiant fighters, warriors in the theater of combat. Extreme combat in some situations. You've seen it, you've smelled it. The smell of the battlefield and yes, the battlefield has scents. The carbon in the air, the diesel in the air. The dirt, the grime, flesh, sweat, blood. And in the theater of war, you're beautiful. But it's very dangerous for you to come back home and be with your families again. A lot of divorces with veteran homes. A lot of divorces because, you know, the guy and the gal, they get married and the gal is, you know, a wife. And then the guy comes back and like, who in the world is this monster? Who in the world is this guy? Because the guy's been exposed. Just like the war horse, just like the war dog. That's what I think about when I read about these war horses. Where the Lord says, you know what, these people, I got them. 
I'm going to kill these people. But the horses just hamstring them. And burn their chariots with fire. And to my beautiful veteran brothers and sisters. When is the Lord that does the hamstringing? Because sometimes veterans hamstring themselves. Sometimes veterans go to the wrong person and they get hamstrung by the wrong person. You go to the VA hospital and they say, here, take these drugs. And then you go to the VA hospital and say, okay, take these drugs, take these other drugs. And take these drugs and these drugs and these other drugs. And finally, you're just a straight up zombie. You try to get a job and you know, it's like, wow, well, you know, the, you guys, some kid who's wet behind the ears. Who knows nothing about extreme violence. He doesn't know that you were in charge of lives. You have a boss that doesn't know that you were in charge of lives. You were, you know, a, 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 in a, a, a leadership echelon in the theater of combat in, in this particular operation. They don't know. That's the civilian world. They don't know. They do their shopping. They do their, you know, they watch their TV. They watch their movies. Meanwhile, what are you doing? Violence. And you can't come back home. And you can't get acclimated to life because of that violence. And you know what Satan whispers? Kill yourself. That's what happens. Bite the bullet. Just kill yourself. You can't fit in here. Just kill yourself. That's what Satan says. That's what happens when a doctor does the hamstringing. That's what happens when you hamstring yourself. But when the Lord hamstrings, it's beautiful. And to my veteran brothers, to my veteran sisters. I tell you from experience. Look what happens here. In verse 7. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly. This is Israel on offense. Israel advances Joshua, he has the assurance of the Lord where, you know, the previous days, you know, this time about tomorrow, this time about tomorrow, they're going to be dead. And so in verse 7, Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them and chased them to greater Sidon, to the brook Mis Misrephoth, and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. They attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now, you know, when the Lord says, like in verse 6, you know, you, I'll do the people, you do the horses. Now, when the Lord says, I'll do the people, remember, he uses his vessels. 
He uses his vessel. Sometimes the Lord does it himself. That's like in, in Egypt, the Lord does it himself. But when the Lord does it himself, he either does it himself by himself or himself through his vessels. Old Testament and New Testament. You see, now when I say New Testament, it's not carnally. It's not weapons of the flesh, of the carnal nature. It's spiritual. I mean, look at how the Lord cleaned house in Corinth. Did he do it himself? In one sense, yes. But it was through his vessels. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful Chloe and those in her household. They write a letter to Vessel Paul. And the Lord cleans house using Vessel Paul. You see? And don't forget Vessel Chloe. Just like we see in the Old Testament. The Lord takes care of it, but through his vessels. And so here we see in verse 9, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Now, to my veteran, beautiful, beautiful veteran brothers and sisters. Put yourself in the war horses, horseshoes. <laughs> Put yourself in the war horses position. I mean, if you've ever had exposure to war animals, they're different. I mean, just like in World War II, the dogs, you know, we're, we're, the war is over. Now we're going, coming back home. But before we come back home, kill the dogs. Because if these dogs come back home, they're going to kill. They're, they're going to go back home to this guy, this guy, their families. They're going to kill everybody in that home. You know, hey, Sparky's back home. Sparky kills everybody because he's a war dog. Now, these war animals. No fear. These are things, if you're a veteran, they're going to resonate with you. No fear. Ready for a fight. Ready to kill. And I don't mean, you know, ready to, you know, go boxing, ready to wrestle. I mean, ready to kill, ready to take life. Ready to die, but you don't care. You know, put you out of your misery. And I tell you from experience. Ready to be an instrument of death and destruction. Fully capable. Now, in battle, very rarely do I speak negative about this mindset. Because the mindset, that's just how it is for certain echelons of the battlefield. That's just how it is. In one regard, the mindset is necessary. But with a different master, capital M. With a different master, the mindset isn't a good thing. Just like the war horses. 
If you're a veteran, you've been exposed to these things. Extreme violence. And in extreme violence, you fought valiantly. You were fully capable. And tendons being cut is painful. It's painful to be immobilized because... When those tendons are cut, you're a fraction of who you used to be. Valiance has fled away, it may seem. But under a new master, capital M, and I speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. Under a new master, you heal from immobilization. The pain of being hamstrung, you heal from that. And you realize that being taken captive, the people, they were killed. The horses, they were not killed. And being cut and hamstrung, It serves to your betterment because it led to healing. Then there's a new type of valiance. It's service unto this master. You know, when the Lord gives the command, you know, hamstring their horses in verse 6 and burn their chariots with fire. I get it. It's like, okay, you know, you take the might of Jabin and his strategy, this military tactician, and it's okay, there's chariots or nothing. But I see it from a different perspective. For the war horse, when you put yourself in the horseshoes of the war horse, and I speak to veterans, That these chariots of old that you pulled, strapped to your back, the command was given, burn those chariots. They're no more. If you're a veteran, when you do your own hamstringing, it's not good. You go to the VA, you go to the doctor, they say, you know, take this drug, take this drug, take this drug, and then all of a sudden you're a zombie. That's not good. Or you go to the bottle. That was my vice. You go to the bottle. Home remedy. That's not good either. But when it's the Lord that hamstrings, it will be painful. (laughs) There will be elements of pain. But in the course of time, there will be healing. But the Lord must be your master, which is a choice. 
The Lord must be your master. And when he is, there will be healing. And those chariots, a vessel of war, you yourself a vessel of war. The chariots are burned. It's not on your back anymore. Thus fulfills what our Lord says himself. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is how I see the war horse. Here in Joshua 11. When I read this chapter, I think of the war horse and I think of veterans. And I'm an animal lover. I like animals. I mean, if I could have things my way, I would have, you know, acre upon acre upon acre and just put a whole bunch of animals there like my own little zoo. And I would name every single one. The biggest of animals to the smallest of one, I would name every single one. I'm an animal lover. I like animals. But that's how I see the war horse. To my veteran brothers and sisters. Healing only comes from the Lord. When you're hamstrung by the Lord. And if you're not a Christian. Commit your life to Jesus Christ. Hit pause. Listen to the message how to commit your life to Christ. And healing will come. As surely as the Lord lives, healing will come. Let's continue in our study here. In verse 10, Joshua turned back at that time and took Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor was formerly the head of all those kingdoms. So now there you see a traversing of the land. It, 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 it happens here, but... Remember, it's Israel is in a war footing, war footing. In verse 11, and they struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing. Then he burned Hazor with fire. So all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua took and struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Now, do you remember our study in Deuteronomy? Which remember, the inheritance of the land, that was a promise of the Lord given to Abraham. Moses, in speaking about the inheritance of the Lord, remember, it's not because you're awesome. Remember our study in Deuteronomy 9? It's not because you're awesome. It's because of the wickedness of the people. Remember, they had their opportunity to repent and align themselves not with their Baal and their uh, Asterisk and, you know, uh, Molech. They had their opportunity for 40 years. But now the door is closed. Now it's a time of judgment upon wickedness. You see, it's very important to remember it's not because they're awesome. It's because of the wickedness. Remember, in Deuteronomy 9, it's not because you're awesome, because you are stiff-necked people. It's because of the wickedness. A time of judgment. 
and the Lord judges, and he uses his vessels. No Achan, no Achan. You see, no Achan. It's very important to understand because there are prophetic implications too. Because a lot of times people think, you know, okay, the the, the Lord is going to return and, you know, we're going to be uh, gathered up and, you know, we're going to go to war and, you know, Armageddon and all these things. But don't forget the glorified body, no aching. No aching. You see? These things are a shadow of things to come. More to be fulfilled. And so we see in verse 13, But as for the cities that stood on their mountains, Israel burns none of them except Hazor only, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the children of Israel took as booty for themselves. But they, so they take like, you know, uh, uh, you know, like, uh, the, uh, to take, uh, uh, like, uh, like, uh, um, the, the spoils of war, so to speak. And you see that they took booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them and they left nothing breathing. Now, when you see that they, they took, uh, the spoil of war and they took booty and they took like gold and now it's not gold to amass wealth. But Israel, in this war footing, they do amass a semblance of wealth. But when you think of gold and precious metals, these are elements that that will be used for a future temple. Because right now they have the tabernacle, which is in the wilderness with them. But looking forward into the future, Solomon, there will be a, not a tabernacle, but a a permanent temple. So some of these spoils of war, it's not to amass wealth, but these spoils of war, these elements, these precious metals are going to be used for a future temple. The war horses, they're going to be used in the breeding. They're going to be used for a future temple. You see, construction. Horses can pull things, you know, pull a lot of wood and pull a lot of stone. That's what's so beautiful. Just like the exhortation to veterans. In service to country, scarred by violence, scarred by war, scarred by experience. When the Lord does the hamstringing, When it's the Lord, not you, not the doctor, not the VA, not the psychiatrist, not the therapist. When it's the Lord. It's so beautiful because, not just because he heals, but he calls you his own. And then there's service unto him. You see? And so we see here in verse 14, 
And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock, the children of Israel took his booty for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they left none breathing. As the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. Look at this, this model here. You know, God says to Moses, Moses obeys. And then Moses says to Joshua, and Joshua obeys. You see? How the word goes forth, how the word is taught. And Moses and Joshua, they have a history. I mean, Moses at this particular juncture, he's dead. But Moses and Joshua have a beautiful history. When all Israel defiled was, was defiled, only two were not, Moses and Joshua. And so we see in verse 15, he left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. In verse 16, thus Joshua took all this land, the mountain country, all the south, all the land of Goshen, the lowland and the Jordan plain, the mountains of Israel and its lowlands from Mount Halak and the ascent to Seir, even as far as Be'el Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon, he captured all their cities and struck them down and killed them. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the children of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. Remember we studied that a couple weeks ago? The inhabitants of Gibeon who made peace with Israel through Joshua. They made peace with Joshua. And then the, the, uh, the elders, they say, hey, Israel, don't kill them because they made peace with Joshua. And Israel has peace with the Gibeonites. A group of Gentiles. And they make peace with Israel through Joshua. In verse 19, all the others, they took in battle. For it was, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts. Now, this is a big deal because a, I mean, it's all a big deal, but I mean, a precursory sign to judgment is the hardening of heart. That's a precursory sign of judgment. The hardening of the heart individually and corporately. Now, the hardening of heart can impact a larger body of people. Just look at Pharaoh. Now, the Bible says that God hardened his heart. Absolutely. Just like we see here in verse 20, for it was of the Lord to harden their hearts. But don't forget what happens before the Lord hardens a heart. The person hardens their own heart. You see? Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then judgment. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And in so doing, it absolutely had an impact on Egypt. Because Egypt was under judgment. You see? A person is the one who hardens their own heart from jello to pine. A person hardens the heart. But from pine to stone, that's what God does. And that's judgment. You see, you and me, 
We want our hearts to be the softest, softest jello. Now, the Bible gives us a formula. And the Word of God, the Word became flesh. He gives us the helper, the Holy Spirit, the Paracletus. The Holy Spirit to do just that, to help. Our hearts stay nice, soft, jello. And the Bible teaches us how, you know, to, to reckon the old man dead, to turn the other cheek, to live sacrificially unto the Lord. You see, the Word of God teaches us how to live sacrificially unto Him, a sweet aroma unto Him, every aspect of our lives, a sweet aroma unto Him. And in so doing, our heart stays nice, beautiful, soft, moldable, jello. Jello. But then all of a sudden comes, just like we spoke earlier, if a person regards iniquity in their heart. You see? A person regards iniquity in their heart. All of a sudden, the temple starts to become defiled. And then a person starts thinking about sin. Fantasizing about sin. Entertaining sin. Before the manifestation. It's happening in the mind, in the heart, inside the temple. And then all of a sudden, the prayers, because of there's the regarding of iniquity in the heart, what does that say of the prayer life? You see? And that's how heart goes from soft jello, instead of going from, you know, from, from a, 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 a maple to jello, it goes the other, that's the good, that's the good moving, you know, when a heart is like oak, as hard as oak, and then all of a sudden, a person comes to Christ and believes in Christ. Now it's soft jello. Now it's got to stay jello. But then the heart, it goes from jello to balsa. From balsa to maple. From maple to oak. From oak to pine. The heart is getting harder and harder and harder and harder. And that's what happens under defunct pastors. Because the defunct pastors... Don't teach Christians about godliness. They can't. Because new wine only flows from new wineskin. Through hypocrisy, they can't. You see, it's self-inflicted. These pastors, they can't do it. They're not the full package. It's not to say that they're not the full package because they're not the full package. That happens for a reason. You have the pastor that does his sex, his drugs, his alcohol. Don't expect new wine from that guy. Formula's got to be right. You have a pastor that's female. Formula's got to be right. That's not the formula. Covering's always male. Always male. You see? And so a heart is jello and it gets harder. Balsa. And it gets harder again. Maple. Then it gets harder again, oak. Now you see, when a heart goes from jello to oak, what happens in the church is that the elders, the overseers, they should be the ones to say, hey, brother, hey, sister, what's going on? You know, how come you, you, you weren't at church the other day and you know, you know, I know you were, you, you used to go to the bars, you used to go to ladies night and do your party. It's like, you know, we have church on, you know, what used to be your ladies night. Like, did you go to ladies' night? Yeah, I, I went to ladies' night. I got drunk and I did the ladies' night. Now, at that point, for the overseers, it's not to say like, boom, you're out of here. It's like, well, you know, 
join us in fellowship. For the overseers to teach, and you know, that's the old nature. You are new in Christ. You know, that's the old nature. And you know, hey, Wednesday night, hey, we're going to come pick you up and we're going to go to church together. You see, it's that's koinonia, that's ecclesia, that's family. That's the body taking care of the body. Just like you have red blood cells, white blood cells. The body takes care of the body. But what happens when there's no elders to do that? What happens when there's no pastors to do that? And they, well, you know, I'm not going to teach sound doctrine. You know, we're going to go grave soaking. You know, I'm going to teach, take the mark of the beast. He'll still be saved or teach replacement theology. And, you know, we're going to, you know, make a mockery of the gifts and the power of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, oh, you know, you want to do your ladies night. You want to go get drunk and hang out with these guys. You know, I'm just going to love on you and let God take care of the rest. And, you know, we're all about love. There's there's no avenue by which the lady can realize, repent, and get cleaned up again to go the opposite direction instead of, you know, going from uh, uh, soft jello to balsa to maple to oak to pine. She, she repents and goes the opposite direction where she goes, you know, back to oak, back to maple, back to balsa, and beautifully back to jello. You see, her heart is nice and soft again. That's when the formula is right in the pastors, in the elders, to shepherd. But under the defunct pastors who don't teach, who don't equip, now the heart gets hard. The lady in the course of time, say it's a year or two years or three years or even five years, in the course of time, her heart has gone from jello, now it's pine. She hardened her heart, she hardened her heart, she hardened her heart, she hardened her heart. But when it goes from pine to stone, that's what God does. That's not good. You see? Hard hearts is a precursory sign to judgment. Don't forget the signs of the last days as love waxes cold, which is prophetic. Hearts are turning to stone. The signs of the times. Times of the signs. It's precursory to judgment. You see? See, sometimes people read like verse 20, it was the Lord who to harden their hearts and you know, get Calvinist and Reformed theology and all of a sudden they say, well, you see, you know, God has mercy on whom he has mercy and he hardens hearts. So, you know, they were predestined for hell. And they come up with these theologies, these bogus theologies, which are just theories. You see, don't do that. It's unbiblical. It's unbiblical to have these bogus, oh, God predestines them to hell. And so, you know, he, he, he creates them and they have hard hearts. And so, you know, they're predestined to hell. They don't have a choice. No, as Pharaoh, he made his choice. These peoples, they made their choices. 40 years, the door is open for 40 years. Now it's judgment. Now it's too late. And now it's the Lord that hardens their heart. You see?
In verse 20, for it was of the Lord to harden their heart. Little side note, you know, you, sometimes, you know, you hear, you hear us mention, you know, Calvinist Reformed theology or even growing in Christ. Now, you know, I don't want to just leave it there and leave it at that because you might be a Calvinist wondering like, what in the world, you know, I don't like this guy anymore. Uh, go to our website, thewayunderground.com. You'll learn more. There's resources there to grow in Christ, to learn about Calvinism, the dangers of Calvinism, and it's all there resources for you. So go check it out. But the, the hardening of the heart it's not just a blanket statement like, you know, God, God hardens heart and, you know, they're, 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 they're predestined to hell because you'll learn about biblical predestination. It's absolutely biblical, but there's a specific formula that God operates in, in accordance to his word. In verse 20, it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle that he might utterly destroy them. You see, he's using his vessels, no Achan. No Achan. Because if there was Achan, all of a sudden Israel would be the hypocrite. Remember, only the clean can clean. Only the clean can clean. And with Achan comes uncleanness. Achan's been taken care of. Now Israel is clean. And when they're clean, they are vessels for the Lord's bidding. We see here in verse 20, and that they might receive no mercy. Now, this is hardcore because a lot of times, you know, we, but God is merciful. God is gracious. Absolutely. God is merciful. God is gracious. God is loving. But at this juncture, the door of mercy, the door of grace, it's closing for these peoples. It's closing because when it was open, that was for the last 40 years when the Lord made himself known in Egypt, all these surrounding peoples, they could have said, you know what? We have our gods. We have Baal. We have Asherah. We have the Molech. But the God of Israel, we're not messing with him. We're going to repent and we're doing away with our idols and with our gods. And we're going to align ourselves to the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what the Gibeonites did. They were... Hivites. That's exactly what the Gibeonites did. They said, okay, you know what? We're done with these. We want peace with Joshua and peace with Israel because, you know, we fear the Lord. Yeah, we have these gods, but Israel, they serve God Almighty. You see, Gibeon made their choice. The Gibeonites, they made their choice and they chose wisely. Just like Rahab, she made her choice. Kind of late, you know, you know, praise the Lord. <laughs> that was like, you know, <laughs> the, the last minute. But praise be to the Lord because she made her choice and it was saved for her and those in her household. But here, when we see no mercy, these are where the Calvinists and the Reformed theology, they get crazy with this. Oh, God has mercy on whom he has mercy. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. Because it is written. Yes, it is written. But don't forget, it is also written. Esau made his choice. You see? Profane. He was a, 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 a profane fornicator. He made his choice. There, are, There's a reason why mercy was given to Jacob. And, you know, no mercy was given to Esau. I mean, there was mercy, there was grace, but, you know, that door became closed as a result of Esau's choices. 
just like we see here. Mercy and grace, the door is open, but it's not open forever. Here at this juncture in verse 20, it's closed. It's a time of judgment. And when I say a time of judgment, it's not like, you know, well, it's a time of judgment, you know, you know, let's have a good time. No, no, no. Very serious business. Very sobering. And so in verse 20, but that he might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. You see, now it's too late. Mercy, grace, it's too late. That door is closed. And it's the same today. We have mercy and grace today, but the door is not going to be open forever. Now, now, if you're not a believer, hit pause, listen to the message, how to commit your life to Christ, and you commit your life to Christ. And I don't want to just gloss over that like, you know, you do that. I, 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 I pray for you to do that. I urge you, I desire you to do that, to commit your life to Christ so that you can be my brother, you can be my sister, young, old, I don't care. But if you're a believer, when you share the good news, understand that hearts in these last days, they're not going to be balsa. You might find balsa every now and then, but it's extremely rare. Hearts are most likely to be oak and pine. Very hard. Not stone, but very hard. And these hard hearts will have an abrasion to it. It will have an abrasion to it. But when you're equipped, remember the Lord says, you know, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now, fishers of men, you can go catch minnows, which, you know, minnows aren't bad. That would be like the balsa, catching minnows. You can catch salmon. That would be like, you know, catching maple, sturgeon, tuna. Now you're getting into deeper territory, which means there's there needs to be better equipping. Not better equipping, but, you know, deeper equipping. Well, I guess you could call that better. You see, because a child can fish for minnows, but a child fishes for whales and tuna, child's going to go overboard and fly away. You see, and with these deeper understandings and better understandings, deeper spiritual matters, you're going to be equipped in sound doctrine and the word of the Lord so that you know, you, you, you're a fisher of men, fisher of women, young, old, it doesn't matter. And you're going to see, okay, this guy's a minnow. This lady is a minnow. But then you're going to encounter the whale. You're going to encounter like the straight up tuna, the big whale. But you'll be equipped. You see, the pine, you're going to encounter the pine. Balsa is very rare. That's what the heart of men are going to look like in the last days. And you might already see it. Let's see. We continue in our study in closing in verse 
21, and at that time Joshua came and cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from the mountains of Judah, and from all the mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. Now remember, grace and mercy was for the previous 40 years. The door was open. Now it's too late. The door for grace and mercy was open. Now too late. Provisions in the law for Gentiles to be grafted into the camp of Israel. Now it's too late. It's a time of judgment. In verse 22, none of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza and Gath and in Ashdot. So Joshua in verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had said to Moses and Joshua gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. Remember the promises of God when the Lord spoke to Moses and talking about the inheritance of the land. And then you have like the Reubenites. They say, well, you know what, Moses, we want to stay here. And Moses went to check with the Lord. And the Lord says, you know, they still got to go to war. So Moses comes back and says, okay, this isn't a way for you to get out of war. You got to go, you know, join us in the campaign of war. We got to fight. And then, you know, when, when we're done, then you can come back and inherit this land that is east of the Jordan. You see? This isn't a war-hungry Israel. Remember, Achan is gone. In fights, in battle, in combat, in war, when you are... When there is victory, carnally speaking, pride and arrogance easily sets in. And it often does. You know, we're invincible. You get the mindset, oh, we're invincible. Nobody can defeat us. We're invincible. And these are things that we're going to see in the future of Israel. When Joshua dies, the elders die. We're going to see Israel, they rest on their laurels. And all of a sudden, they start to get the mindset like, oh, we're awesome. We're invincible. We have all these victories in war. And then what happens? Harlotry. Remember, God clearly says it's not because you're awesome, this inheritance. It happens for a reason. It's because of the wickedness and a time of judgment on the people. And in so doing, what happens? The correlation of time. It is a land of milk and honey as promised to Abraham. Inheritance happens for a reason. And in the course of time later, what happens when Joshua dies, the elders die, God becomes forgotten. And then victories become fewer and fewer and fewer. But it's the same reason as Achan. It's because sin is in the camp. You see? But under the leadership of Joshua with these elders, it's so beautiful. See, leadership matters. Leadership absolutely matters. It just so happens we're in our studies on Sundays through the pastoral epistles. Old Testament, leadership matters. New Testament, leadership matters. Today, leadership matters. The Bible teaches that Christians, we are to submit to pastors. And that's 
very dangerous to do in these last days. It's very beautiful. But the formula, it must be right. You know, let's put you aside. In the pastor, the formula must be right. Not zero package, not package one, not package two, not package three. We're talking real deal, full package four. When you have the full package, it is safe to submit to such a pastor. Why? Because they watch out for your soul. What's happening in the church today is that Christians, saints, the flock of God, because of biblical illiteracy, the Bible says submit to the pastor. And they submit to the pastor without testing the biblical qualifiers. So they say, well, you know, this pastor says go grave soaking and I'm going to go submit to the pastor. And so I'm going to go grave soaking. You see? But there's a biblical testing involved. Here in these Old Testament passages under the leadership of Joshua and these rulers with Joshua, when they're alive, everything is beautiful. But when they die, the Lord becomes forgotten. And it's sad. It's going to break your heart. It breaks my heart, but it's going to break your heart. These warriors, you know, in our study here in Joshua 11, these warriors, these vessels of the Lord, they return from war, from combat. And now we activate the priesthood. Also vessels of God. We activate the priesthood, the priesthood as vessels of the Lord, because they're just like we see here in verse 23, then the land rested from war. There's healing of the land from war. And there's healing of the people from war because there's been bloodshed. They've killed not murder, but they've killed in war, bloodshed, healing of the warriors. They've had exposure to blood. They've had exposure to violence. The priesthood, vessels of the Lord, let's get you cleaned up, guys. You see? And the whole purpose is for the camp to be right and clean before the Lord. Old Testament, New Testament. Shepherds. Abodah, Abodah, Mishkan. If you're like listening, you're like, what is that? Listen to our study through Leviticus. You'll understand more. But Abodah, Abodah, Mishkan. Showbread. Remember, it just so happens we studied showbread on Sunday. Showbread. And when the formula is right, among leadership, among these vessels. Okay. Come on, guys. Let's get you cleaned up. You see? Let's get you cleaned up so that you can be right before the Lord and clean before the Lord. A sweet aroma unto the Lord. We're going to end our study here. Lord willing, pick up on the next chapter next week. But to the beautiful, beautiful people of the way, a remnant of these last days. God bless you. I love you.